Hey folks, welcome to Florida Uncut, the podcast all about the people who are behind the connection and protection of Wild Florida. Uh, you'll notice last week we didn't have an episode. I was out sick, uh, but we got it. We got it today, and a new one's coming out next week. So I'm going to get back on that same two week cadence. If you want to support the show, we've got a new Patreon page. You can support us for five bucks a month to help go towards gas costs, uh, software costs, equipment costs, uh, to help keep this show going, go a, a really long way, and it helps me keep putting this show out there and uh, today we're talking to Mike Ellswig. I know Mike from serving on the Environmental Lands Management and Acquisition uh, Committee here in Manatee County. Mike is our county's division manager of the Natural Resources Division in the county's Park and Natural Resources Department. I'm sure I could clean that up a little bit but that, that's all I got for now. Mike's important and he runs a great team. He is the person once we acquire land which is what I am super passionate about getting more land for wild Florida. And I know that's why you listen to the show because you're passionate about it too. Well, Mike is someone who comes in behind the acquisition and says, all right, now what do we do? How do we manage it for the best possible natural setting for the, whatever wildlife species is there, how to restore it basically as natural as possible and keep it that way. And what I've learned is it's a heck of a lot more goes into it than I realize. And I have a feeling it might be the same for you. Mike is clearly an encyclopedia of information and holds his team to an incredibly high standard. So I, I'm happy that someone like him is in charge of this stuff here in this county. It's got me really interested to learn more. So I hope you find this interesting too. And uh, thanks Mike for making this happen. Well, uh, you know, I learned about you through through LMAC here at Manatee County Environmental Lands Management and Acquisition Committee. You've spoken a number of times. You're usually there at every meeting. And so I, I wanted to invite you on to just hear about what all goes into once land is protected in whatever facet that is. It doesn't stop there. That's literally the beginning. Right. Well, uh, number one, thanks for paying attention uh, of of the LMAC committee. I I don't get a lot of feedback as far as what what's interesting. What do they want to hear more of? What do they want to hear less of? What do they have questions about? So thanks for thanks for uh, f you know for sort of giving me some feedback on that. Oh, yeah, um, I love learning something every time. Like whether it's a speaker or having you come up and just share like what's been going on. I'm like I had no idea. Right, no and idea. and of course, the role of the of the committee is is to advise not only in what parcels to acquire, but but how they should be managed. So, so that's what I'm I'm keenly interested to try to get more of from the LMAC is what are you guys? Because you guys are like you said, you're you're a you're a land user, uh, you're you know a, a professional customer, so to speak. Yeah. You know, so so we we want to know what's your experience, and not only do you have a lot of experience in Manatee County lands, you've been other places and you're seeing other things and the way other land management entities do things so we're keen to to get feedback along those lines but but to your to your main question there what happens after we we close the deal and uh have acquired uh, a new parcel uh and so typically before that and and through the lmac process uh in particular it's spelled out that we should have a work plan already in place so we've got an idea of what specific user amenities that we should bring uh to that place and a lot of times the place itself suggests that or tells you that. I mean, it basically, how are people already using the property? Because mm. no matter if it's private property or not, typically any natural area, attractive land, you know, especially in, uh, you know, densely suburban place like uh, west coast of Florida, 
is going to have a lot of people using it, whether the landowner knows it or not. So there's people out there, you know, sneaking in fish or they're, or they're, you know, or they like to ride their horse there or, or the landowners maybe been fine with that for a long time. And people are hunting there. You know, if you, if you look at duet preserve, a lot of folks that became the early part of the hunting program were previously poaching there or had some landowner permission. So those existing land uses and recreational, you know, activities that are going on, you know, to try to honor how people already see how the property should be used. Or they're sort of showing us what what the property could be already. Um, you know, so a place like Emerson Point Preserve um, that was acquired in the 90s, you know, people were, were already going out there to fish and launch, you know, canoes and stuff. So, you know, definitely needed to, to incorporate that um, in, in addition to protecting and interpreting the archaeological resources there. So, so coming up with that work plan of, of developing those amenities. Um, and in the case of our LMAC program, a significant amount of the money set aside for acquisition of the parcel can also be used to build those amenities. It might be that to, to, to better access, we've got to upgrade a road coming in. We've got to replace a culvert and make it safe. You know, the kind of the kind of things you can get away with, you know, getting around a ranch, for example, might not work with with the public. So. So, you know what I mean? There, we've seen some pretty sketchy uh, crossings and bridges and things like that. And, and so those needing to be all upgraded and made safe for general public use, uh, building parking lots, building restrooms. You know, people have a different set of expectation when they when they know that their public tax dollars have gone into acquiring a land versus if they're sneaking out there and, you know, just using a, a private piece of land. Um, so, so in other words, they expect to be able to use the restroom. They expect to have good trails, you know, uh, that are, you know, not muddy and underwater, you know, so maintaining trails and, and that, you know, building good trails is, is critical. And so that's all under your responsibility. Yeah. Uh, uh, so the ecological marine resources team helps out a lot with that in terms of design of uh, habitats. They bring partners to the table, uh, South Florida Water Management District, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, other federal partners, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Their job is to find those partners, those funding sources, and begin those um, early stage restoration projects to take an old fallow farm field and make a, a mosaic of, of wetlands and and other habitats and you've seen that firsthand yeah that kind of re-naturalization right um you know and habitats created out of whole cloth in some cases not not necessarily going back to just doing pure restoration where we say okay what was this land like before we messed it up going back you know that's that's typically what we do on our side is look at a piece of land that's been degraded and try to bring it back it's sort of like you know almost like health analogy analogy to healthcare, you know versus trying to create something brand new out of whole cloth. So for example, a place like Robinson Preserve um, used to be a farm field and they they would come in and say, well, in order to connect this tidally and create um, habitats that are that are that are benefit to fisheries, you know, snook fishery, tarpon fishery, to create all that habitat, they're they're having to permit um, the the alterations of the landform so that they can come in and um, you know, basically build those habitats, but in, in so doing there's mangrove impacts that we have to mitigate inside the, inside the project. So where we, where we impact some mangroves, we got to replace and create them. So their, their job is to permit all that. And that's, that's very tedious and complicated and uh, relies on a, a big variety of experts and uh, in, in, you know, specific te- you know, technical expertise. So, um, they, they bring all that together and, and, um, 
you know, make a lot of that happen. And that's, that's under Charlie Hunsicker, the, the natural resources director. Um, but that team, basically those, those engineers and landscape architects and ecologists, you know, collaborate to, to provide, um, you know, the mosaic of ha- the design for that mosaic of habitats and then layered on that, you know, the recreational uses. So, you know, how can we not only create fisheries habitat, but a nice walking trail, um, a, you know, a, you know, a kayak launch, but also places to store your kayak, that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. How can all this be, you know, accessed conveniently and how can we, how can we provide other, um, outdoor recreation activities, you know, just picnic pavilions and, um, things Park like that. Lots. And, and then, yeah. and then accommodate, um, the desire for folks to, to do like 5k, 10k races and, and build a trail that's not, not only good for walking, but that, that serves that purpose as well. So we can have those, we've got several four or five, uh, major races a year that happen at, at Robinson, the, um, fit to run, uh, 5k, 10k yeah. being one of the, the most, uh, well, I was there last year. Yeah. I was there last year. Or maybe, I guess that was earlier this year, but, uh, but that's a unique park because it is so central, not central to Bradenton, but like it, it's so accessible. Yeah. And then you've got other parks and other preserved lands that have a t- entirely different mindset. Like yeah. wet. I don't know how m- I, I'd love to do a survey. How many people are even aware that park exists? Yeah. Um, I didn't even know it exists when I moved here and I, right. it, it just felt like I uncovered a, a gym, this huge gym that takes up a huge chunk of the County yeah. that I had no idea was out there. Yeah, I had so been it's here. a different mindset there. Yeah, I grew up here. I'd been here 25 years before I knew uh, I knew it was there. So yeah, really? yeah. Oh, I mean, there's no billboard on the on the no, highway. No, and there's, there's no signage. Um, you know, whereas I knew about Maca State Park. Of course, that's a much older park, but also you know has the campground and and um, the apparatus of the state park system, yeah. drive and visitation there. But um, yeah, places like Duet Preserve a lot more on the minim- minimalist end of the spectrum. From you know Robinson being on the more developed uh, nature park end of the spectrum, to, you know, on maybe on the other end of the lands that we would acquire and manage. Uh, Duet is a good example of a very minimalist approach. You know, a small primitive campground. Um, roads needed for access and, and, you know, some walkthroughs and, and not much else, you know, yeah. you can, you can ride, you can, you know, uh, ride a bike or ride your, ride your horse there, or, uh, we've got a hunt program, of course, there too. But so, so what other things are under your management that people might not realize prescribed burns, uh, hunting permitting? Do y'all manage that? Yeah. So, so within Duet Preserve, um, not, not generally speaking in the yeah. state of Florida, you know, you know, issues license and all that, but, um, as far as hunting at Duet Preserve, yeah, you've got to you got to um, show proof of hunter safety card, um, do, uh, get a, acquire a permit from us, and then yeah, participate in our reg, our regularly scheduled and um, managed hunts uh, of the oh, preserve. Yeah. So and that's all under y'all's management. Yeah, yeah, we do 20, uh, 20 hunts a year, uh, twenty weekends a year. We're we're hunting, so the full range of um, archery, muzzleloader, general gun into small game, quail season, you know, turkey. We have a turkey hunt, um, which is one of the best value uh, turkey hunts you can get. It's almost more like on a private hunt uh, in terms of the uh, the, you know, the amount of area you've got to yourself to hunt. Wow. You know, we'll have 12, 12 people out on uh, twenty two thousand acres, so um, it's a it's a pretty special experience if you're drawn. So you know, a lot of folks put in every year and they don't get drawn every year. Obviously, you know, we got several hundred hunters you know maybe 150 or 200 entrants and then we're going to pick 12 so 
it is it is a lucky thing but then you get three weekends to to hunt and try to take a take a bird so it's an exceptional value and it's something something we're able to do you know we we could try to extract every every bit of value out of that and and you know charge what that fair market value would be but our goal is is to be that that blue collar hunt program that you know for folks that you know work all week you know, hunt all weekend go back to work on monday our, our goal is to provide access to the type of experience that you know historically was only available to you know aristocracy and you know gentlemen um so you know, that kind of thing and we, and we have a youth turkey hunt, so we get kids out there, we get families, um, you know, a couple of husband and wife teams that hunt together. And um, it's, it's, it's very much a family uh, program that we have there. It's, it's a lot less uh, kind of lawless and wild westy than, uh, than some of the large wildlife management areas and national forests and things like that, where it's a little bit diff- more difficult to regulate um, and, 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 you know, a lot more user conflicts happening. Um, it's, it's a pretty well-managed, um, group, you know, because we have so many regulars, people that have been with the program for years, they, um, they all know each other and they take, you know, take care of each other, so to speak, and, and call each other out when they're, when they're, you know, breaking rules. So it's almost in some ways self-regulating, you know, people let us know when other people are, we don't have to be eyes and ears out there all the time. They've got, they've got game cameras up all over that they monitor, you know, to to track and see what's what's happening with the deer or hogs. And then uh, they will sometimes send us pictures and say, "Hey, this guy drove his truck where he's not supposed to drive it." You know, we've got designated trails oh, wow. and that kind of thing. Or this guy was using bait. You know, we're not allowed to bait, so that kind of thing. So you're a resident, lifelong resident of Manatee County. Yeah. How'd you get into this world? You know, it sounds like you enjoyed it quite a bit growing up, enjoyed the natural spaces, but what led to this interest in wanting to work in this field? Yeah. Well, I think most of us that are afflicted with that general biophilia, just love of, of, of nature, you know, I can't, can't point to their childhood, you know? So, so for me, you know, uh, I remember my brother, I didn't, I got my bike stolen. So he was towing me around town. I was on his handlebars and, um, he was, I think, this is before Steve Irwin, but there were some other some other good um, you know nature shows on, and we were we were pretty steeped in that. But he saw a banded water snake, and he's like, "You go get that snake." And he told me to catch it, um, or he wasn't going to tow me home because <laughs> I was a little scared. <laughs> I didn't want to walk you know a couple of miles home, so you know, like just going and grabbing and getting bit by a, a a banded water snake, and then just realizing it's not you know nature's not not particularly that scary. But you know things experiences like that being t- you know taught how to how to fish and stuff like that uh early on you know just give you a general in in sailing and you know scuba diving after a while um doing a lot of snorkeling um you know gave me a a good appreciation for what it's like to to live in a you know a coastal area that you could uh you know you could actually enjoy getting the water because it's not freezing and that kind of thing but no i I mean i so i i thought early on i wanted to be a biologist or you know i i I learned the word zoologist at some point and thought I wanted to do that. I spent a lot of time studying other things too in college uh, before I finally came back around to that. Um, so I, I have a degree in biology um, from the University of South Florida, and one of my one of my favorite classes was uh, I got into was field botany. So so that got me a good um, good exposure to native um ecosystem from the from the ground up so to speak like i think a lot of people can get interested in in kind of charismatic megafauna and stuff wildlife i mean you know uh, birds of prey and and um 
you know, game animals like that. So they're just inherently interesting. You know, they behave, they move, they, they do cool things. But um, getting interested in plants, you know, I, I think was a good setup for having to take care of ecosystems as a whole. Because, you know, when you walk out here, mostly what you see is is plants. It, you know, it's not on, it's not an ecosystem made up mostly of animals. Like most of the, most of the living things around you are, you know, plants or they're microbes really. Um, but um, kind of learning these ecosystems from the bottom up uh, and, and studying in, in the plant ecology lab at USF. Uh, and then, you know, I spent probably two or three years doing uh, really straight ahead biology work, working as a field botany technician, as an intern at Archbold Biological Station, and then with the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission doing, doing botany work. But um, we were we were studying ecosystems that I could see were in decline. So I'm being ma made aware of environmental issues and learning about the environment and studying it, but not really do, getting a chance to do much about it. Um, you know, and so I, I really felt a sense of urgency to, to, to try to take some of this knowledge that, you know, we were, we were learning and put it into practice, uh, you know, to, to directly affect places that, um, you know, I felt I had skin in the game. I, you know, I, I felt a certain level of responsibility to protect places that, you know, we were watching decline in some cases. Um, you were like, yeah, I get it. It's going down. What? Let, let's do something. Yeah, yeah like exactly. Every study is pretty much the same. Right, right. Same exactly. uh, hypothesis. It's going downhill. Right. And we can say, well, but we still, you know, need to learn a lot more about this species before, you know, you know, and so, so I, I just got disillusioned with academia and so it ended up, uh, you know, getting into the land management side of things. Uh, at, uh, I worked at Bach Tower Gardens for a little bit oh, yeah. on their conservation program. And then, uh, you know, once once I got into prescribed fire, I think that was really like, you know, definitely uh, left academia behind because, you know, it's pretty exciting and interesting to, to, to do land management work and, and, you know, realize in a short period of time you can have a big impact. And although most of the restoration projects we have are, you know, long term, but you know, you're, you're not always going to, maybe in some cases we're not even going to live to see the, the successful outcome of the restoration of a, an old growth longleaf pine forest, for example. Yeah. But just, just the short term, you know, seeing what happens after you burn an area, even two or three times, you know, so even over a period of six years, you know, you could see a pretty dramatic change in, in improvement in, in some of these systems. So that really, uh, you know, getting involved in prescribed fire uh, definitely kind of sealed, sealed the deal on, on, on being committing to land management. Um, and then in Manatee County, you know, I, I worked at Sarasota County for almost seven years and then came here. Manatee County gave me a, an opportunity to, to do not only that land management work, but also learn more about, um, yeah, managing recreational use and, and, and the, uh, you know, the, the user amenities and things like that. And so we're, we're getting, you know, more and more into that. I mean, I should say we're, we're developing what we've got in terms of recreational assets more and more. We'll be building a new campground at Rye Preserve. And, um, oh, really? and so, Exciting. yeah, the RV campground. So that's, uh, where a lot of the state parks are going is more and more catering to RV. Um, and so definitely going to drive up visitation and, and, uh, the use of that site, plus all the developments happening around Rye is going to be a lot more local, yeah. local walk-in, bike-in users. So that's a place where we have a lot of growth opportunity and, and what we do there. 
Yeah, and then if anyone wants to know, well, how do you get into the, you know, how did I get in? Because because you can talk about, you know, how, sometimes those pathways, those are not the same anymore, right? So the ways to get into, you know, as, as the, the field develops and, you know, it changes. So, you know, what I'd say to, to young folks now that are interested in getting into this work, it's a, it's a challenge because you need to be able to, you need to be able to do some interning and OPS work and volunteer work to really get the, develop those credentials so that you're competitive for a, for a, a good, you know, even entry level permanent position. Um, so that's kind of a challenge for folks that need to make money right out of, either right out of school or, you know, wherever they're at. If, if you can't afford to, to not make money for a while, then it is going to be a challenge. Um, make, you know, if, if you have, you know, if you got dependents, you got people counting on you to be a breadwinner early on, then I, I wouldn't recommend getting into this field. But if you can, if you can, you know, eat rice and beans for, for a while and you can, you can live, you know, cheaply, or if you've got, you know, support from your family to, to do that, then yeah, if you can, if you can get in an internship, um, you know, you know, one or two years worth of, you know, interning or, um, or like OPS jobs, you know, part-time gigs, um, is, is a great way to, to build that resume so you can get a, a full-time, you know, benefited position either with a consulting firm or a state agency or a local government or somebody that's doing the, the specific type of work you want to do. But whether it's wildlife biology or land management, even, you know, doing education and outreach in this, in this area, we, you know, we've got a good team that does um, basically nature-based education. So they have a similar sort of pathway to get in here. Most of them started as interns and most of them are highly educated too. So it's, it's not, it, you know, the only thing, you know, the only thing it's probably tougher as far as the conservation thing is like trying to be like a, a marine biologist, or, you know, working with dolphins or something. It's like just a giant line of people with PhDs, you know, waiting to like clean the aquarium at, uh, you know, at, at SeaWorld. So, yeah, it's just, wow. it's just challenging, you know, obviously it's so one of the things is like we require people to learn quite a few skills and like actually actually de de actually develop a, a lot of expertise in in really technical things um you know prescribed fire is not something you, know, you would learn in an academic setting um learning how to do invasive plant control you know so we, we basically expect people to be you know pest control technician a firefighter um you know have have a good knowledge of of native ecosystems and stuff like that so almost almost a biologist too is to really learn you know how to do this work is is multidisciplinary i guess the word yeah. i'm looking for yeah so you're going to be doing a lot and there's no shortage of work to do right and you you're not going to develop mastery of of anything and everything you're you're, you're going to you know have some exposure and some competence in a lot of areas and you know, feel, feel like you're in over your head most of the time, you know? <laughs> so hunting permitting, yes. And a lot more under that umbrella. You manage a prescribed burns. Yeah. So, um, like any good land management agency, and I would say, you know, standing head and shoulders above some of our, um, our, our counterparts, we do a prescribed fire program that is, I would characterize it as, um, comprehensive, uh, if not ag aggressive, uh, you know, in terms of trying to achieve as much as we can reasonably with fire. Um, we have a good safety record, but we also have a good track record of going to places that other folks would not try to burn because of the fuel loading, because of the proximity to homes and, and pulling off some challenging urban interface fires. 
Um, and that starts with good public outreach, getting with the community, letting, letting them know that the state of this land we've acquired or the state of the land we've had for a while that is now being brought under a proper management regime is is bad. It, fuel loading is bad. You know, there's, it, it's a danger. It's a hazard to your, your home, your community. Uh, it's no longer serving the functions it needs to for wildlife. You know, doing that kind of outreach to say that prescribed fire needs to happen here. Uh, we need to get fire as a natural process back into this area. Um, and so convincing folks of that up front or at least, you know, we don't we don't uh, win 100 percent of hearts and minds on that. Some people are dead set that the that we are, you know, destroying wildlife habitat and we're, you know, creating a, a public health nuisance with smoke, that kind of thing. But our, our our overall point is it's not a question of if it will burn, but when and under what circumstances. So, you know, as you see in places out west, you know, where where fire suppression has been more extensive than it has in Florida. You know, you, you, the consequences of allowing fuels to build up is, is is pretty bad, and then you're you're always pointing the fingers at who started the fire, and rather than trying to manage ignition sources and keep ignition sources down, we just manage the fuel, the underlying fuel. I mean, the mindset in some of those places is kind of like, you know, you've got oily rags and gasoline everywhere, and then you know somebody's mad that somebody lit up a cigarette. Well, it's not the guy who lit up the cigarette; so it's the guy who left all the the oily rags and fuel everywhere, you know, so you gotta, you gotta manage the hazard from, from the fuel standpoint. And so our program is not only, you know, a, a fire, a wildfire risk mitigation program, but also an ecological restoration and management program. So that's why we use fire is for the benefit of, uh, of wildlife and plants that, that, you know, have evolved for millions of years to, uh, to, to require fire. So, and and so we burn 10 to 12,000 acres a year. Um, which is, you know, of, of a program that's relatively small, a 28,000 acre land management, um, regime. So, or, you know, program. So, so we're, um, we're, you know, we, most of our areas that, that do require fire that in other words, that have fire dependent habitats, we burn on a two year rotation or less in some cases. But, um, so our mean fire return, our average fire return interval, you know, the average time between fires is relatively low. Um, what is know, that time? Uh, well, for duet, it's 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 getting closer and closer to two now because we have history going back where we had some longer intervals, but it's getting closer and closer to two years. Um, which you know the we try to make use of best available science. You know, a lot of our a lot of our management efforts are kind of you know fifty percent art and fifty percent science, but um, we do try to rely on the best available science. And as far as prescribed fire, the best available science we have. Uh, comes from uh, the work of Gene Huffman and Bill Platt, um, ecologists. Uh, you know that, that have published a paper from Avon Park, is which is almost at our latitude. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's frostproof, but Avon yeah. Park bombing range. Frostproof. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. So that's pretty much at our, our latitude almost. Uh, and so it's the and it was a study of of um, of of fire. I'm sorry. Of, of the fire history uh, as evidenced by tree rings. So they, they found old growth stumps. These are stumps that were cut in probably the 20s. And so when they were cut, they were several hundred years old. So in their tree rings is a record of, of you know, things like drought and, and also fire, is what, you know, what they're finding. You can find uh, scars, the burn scars in those rings going back hundreds of years. So, you know, you're talking about in some cases into the 1700s um, for some of those older trees that they've got a fire history that they can infer. And not only can they tell which years did a fire occur, but uh, in what season. 
uh, was, you know, because where it's based on where that scar is and the early growth, late growth of the tree ring. So, so that's the only direct evidence we have because no one remembers this, how this land looked 1700s, you know, some, there's a few, uh, you know, anecdotes from travelers, um, you know, people complaining that the palmettos chafed at their ankles and shins. You know, when I grew up here, palmettos was head high, you know, in the the eighties and nineties. So yeah, I, I, I wish we had that problem. So, you know, basically we try to, we try to implement that as best we can and, and keep that fire, fire frequent as it was in prehistory, you know, with, with uh, ubiquitous ignition source, you got lightning happening May, June, July, everywhere across this landscape and no barriers, you know, Manatee river is a good barrier, but east to west, really no, no barriers to, to fires moving. Well, not only would forestry, you know, come out and put the fire out for us, um, if we had a wildfire, so we couldn't really do a let burn policy, um, without their buy-in. So whenever there's an unauthorized fire, you know, wildfire, um, they, they are incentivized to put it out as quick as possible. And the, um, success measure for them is the number of linear feet of, of plow line they put in. So when that, when they put that dozer down and that's the main way of putting out wildfires is to drop a dozer with a plow on it and plow up a ring around it. So you look at a place like Duet Preserve, um, there is, you know, you can find historic plow lines and those, those really tear up the ground you know not only disturb the vegetation but alter the hydrology that's like a new creek channel that they dug in so they're not great things to have you know it really is a scar on the landscape that can last decades um you know before it kind of erodes and gets back and fills in the ditch they created but so it, it's not an ideal situation to to have uh have Florida Forest Service managing fires and, you know, on our property. So, so we try to, we try to do the best we can to, to keep that landscape burned so that any wildfires we have or low severity aren't, you know, aren't as, uh, can be put out with water, you know, instead of having to put down a dozer and plow out. So, so a let burn policy is really no longer possible. So then, you know, if you don't, if you don't burn, uh, you know, you get, you get pretty bad buildup of fuels. And then basically, you know, if you imagine you're a baby quail or a gopher tortoise, you're, you're pretty much feeding and traveling at, you know, a couple inches off the ground. Um, if, if it's a wall of shrubs, it's six foot high. You're not, you might have good cover there, but you certainly don't have any, any good forage or ability to move around the landscape. That's the main reason for, for burning. And so you're trying to mimic nature in that way. You're managing public access. What about biological research and data collection? Is that also something y'all manage or uh, is that something you at least like assist with? Yeah, we, we contract a lot of that out um, because we don't have biologists on staff and our needs are, our needs are sort of seasonal. So um, for example, the, the scrub jay, you know, the yeah, yeah, li- yeah, listed endemic bird, that's one of our, our umbrella species. Uh, so, so if that species is doing well, a, a lot of other species in, in the entire habitat is doing well, typically. So because it has such specific habitat requirements, if you're keeping that species happy, generally everything's happy. So, so that therefore we don't have to monitor the entire ecosystem. We, we, we can select that umbrella species and monitor it. So we're, we, um, contract with um, private consultants like Quest Ecology or Flatwoods Consulting. And, you know, they've got the expert ornithologists that come out and, and track, monitor. They ban those birds. They know every bird in that population. They know its parents, its grandparents. They know where it came from. They know if it goes somewhere else and shows up at another park, 
that record of that dispersal event will be important. They know how many eggs it laid this year if it's a female. They know, um, you know, how many of those eggs fledged to uh, to you know uh, to you know join the the sort of adult population, and then you know the, the life history of them. Um, they don't always know how they met their end. You know, they could they could starve or they could get eaten by a rat snake or they don't always know that. But uh, they're not like radio collared, but they they all get a unique. Um, they get bracelets basically. Um, and I'll get a unique color band and, and number so so that they can be identified with binoculars uh, at a distance. So, so yeah, that's one of the more extensively tracked species, but we also do, we do monitoring of some of our game populations, uh, white-tailed deer, bobwhite quail, um, the turkey, you know, Osceola turkey. Um, so we- You do all that in-house? No, that's also a contract that we've done some of the data collection in-house and had them analyze it. Um, so we partnered with them, particularly with our deer surveys, um, you know, because our guys know how to spot deer and count them just as well. So, yeah, you know, yeah, sometimes the field work isn't particularly um, <clears throat> challenging as far, you know, you don't have to have a PhD to do some of that field work. So we'll provide some of the data and then they'll analyze it, run it through their models and give us a sense for how many more deer could be taken or maybe how many fewer should be taken, that kind of thing. Or, or a lot of times they're advising us on sex ratio. You've got to take more does, you know, you're only taking bucks, that kind of thing. We get that kind of advice um, from the, from that work. Other than that, there's we're not doing a ton of, of certainly not vegetation monitoring. We have some partners that monitor a couple of rare species um, at our, some of our coastal sites. We've got a, a cactus aboriginal prickly poppy that we monitor that's that's a that's being reintroduced um that was locally extirpated and we got um chrysopsis floridana i'm trying to say florida golden aster uh is another um rare scrub endemic so you know endemic meaning only found in that in that habitat we've got um the florida golden aster being monitored at that duet preserve and so um it's, it's not as much so so we could definitely use more information it's costly to get that information and so we're, we're trying to operate uh we're trying to spend, where, where do you get it do you get it from the universities do you get it from government entities right How so most of the time i don't have to recreate you know the research has been done the research you know could show for example that if you burn frequently you know you get better better seed production on wire grass or that kind of thing i don't have to re recreate that study at duet and say well okay that was true and you know, Marion County is a true here in Manatee County. You know, I, you know most of those most of those lessons we can we can transfer and learn and to our properties we manage. So, um, yeah, we're not an academic institution. We're not a field biological station like Archbold, where everything is being studied. Basically, mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we try to get away with monitoring as little as possible so that that money can go into management um, mm -hmm. and, and you know. Learn, learn the lessons that others are, are teaching us. So, yeah, we, we spend time going to conferences, um, learning particularly about invasive species management, uh, how to manage prescribed fire for wildlife benefit. Those are the main things. And, and a little bit about uh, how to do recreational amenities better, mm -hmm. you know, how to build better trails and, and that kind you're, of thing. You're trying to balance public access and, like, ecological rehabilitation which don't always, you know, work together. Yeah, right. Those can, can be at odds with each other. Those interests, right. Can be at odds with each other. We know we, we try not to think uh, zero sum game with that, but sometimes, yeah, it, it is a give and take. And, and so where that um, balance point is set for different properties is different. You know, place like Robinson, clearly we're prioritizing a, a lot more 
um, the recreational use side of things, you know, there's a, in terms of number of trails or the amount of trails per acre, you know, there's a lot more trails. There's a lot more, um, you know, built infrastructure on those properties. And so we're, we're prioritizing public enjoyment and use of the site. And you can also probably have more touch points for education right. in a trail where more people are. You can right. have signage and, and whatnot that can say, hey, this is this is important for this reason. This is why this right. is being done. So that when they they might be more, you know, confident to venture out into places like Duet or Mayaka after yeah. learning at a place that's, you know, got, got kind of a little more amenities, you know. Right. It's more accessible. It's being a place they can get to. But yeah, it, it not only are you might it develop their confidence to, to do to, you know, to be a little more intrepid and take on some some more challenging hikes and things like that. But also, you know, yeah, like you said, it's educating them on the value of these places. So if we have 270,000 people come through Robinson and, you know, 20, 20,000 people come through Duet, you know, we're able to reach more people in terms of the messaging around need to protect land, need to protect water, um, you know, at a place like Robinson Preserve so that they can be supporters of our environmental lands program at places they may never visit. Um, but if, as long as they have some, some connection to that program and a place they can visit, maybe just walk their dog, you know, um, it's, it's, it gives them, yeah, a point of contact for the program and, and, uh, you know, a way to, way to get behind it. You know, if we, yeah, if we focus a hundred percent on places that were, were just, you know, landscape connections for, for wildlife and, 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 um, you know, pure conservation, we might not have the, as much support for the, for the program, yeah. um, as Absolutely. we did, you know, the, the Manatee County lands acquisition program, you know, well supported, you know, kind of, you know, across the political spectrum, people, people, uh, lend support to, to that initiative. So the other two big buckets that I just, from my point of view, seems that is under y'all's management. And then I want to get into misconceptions, which are two big ones, I think, is hurricane relief or hurricane recovery efforts, because that's been more prevalent the last two years, and also invasive species. Yeah. both That's all under you, too. Right. Uh, well, you know, invasive species uh, touch a lot of departments, you know, so if you're if you're responsible for maintaining utilities and all of a sudden, you know, Cuban tree frog comes along and starts shorting out your electrical infrastructure, you know, invasive species or if you're, you work at the water plant now and there's a new new uh, aquatic invasive plant that's that's clogging up your reservoir. You know the intakes on your on your on your water system. You need more maintenance all of a sudden, so it, it can it can affect a lot of different things the county does. But but yes, absolutely, in the management of natural areas, that's an area that I think more than any other, even folks even folks who manage land in other parts of the country don't realize how much more um, effort is put into how much more money is put into managing invasive species in natural areas in Florida. You know, Florida, like Hawaii, like uh, California, and you know, like Australia, has that island-like biogeography. Um, what I mean by that is, it has a relatively naive flora. Um, so, you know, Florida was underwater, you know, not not too long ago, six million years ago. It, it, you know, in, in evolutionary terms, not too long ago, our state didn't exist, right? So, it came up out of the water and was colonized primarily from the north uh, species that were. Uh, temperate, you know, adapted. So a lot of things are kind of getting out of their their evolutionary history and their niche and, and expanding into new niches and developing 
um, adaptations for this subtropical climate that we have. So whereas these other places in the world have had subtropical climates for millions, many more millions of years. So they have had much more time to develop, you know, plants that are, that are, that are just that much better, you know, tougher. They're just that much more efficient at turning light into sugars and plant parts. So, so you, you have, you have that combination of, of, um, evolutionary naivety, like, you know, um, you, you know, the extreme example are some of these Pacific islands where you have like a carnivorous pigeon or, you know, um, you know, basically you get lineages that expand out into other niches that they historically didn't, didn't really do. And then all of a sudden you bring rats out there and, you know, they have no, no, no adaptations for them. But so Florida has that, that island-like biogeography and a lot of these species that are brought over are separated from their natural enemies. So those two reasons are why we have so many invasive species in Florida. The native plants don't compete as well as, as they could, uh, uh, you know, with, with species from South America, from Africa, from Southeast Asia, you know, the other, the other territories where we have subtropical climates that donate in the Northern and Southern hemisphere, like Australia, that have donated a lot of plants to us, uh, you know, when, when they've come, uh, or a lot of species, um, so yeah, uh, invasive wildlife species as well, you know, the python, feral hog, on and on, um, pre presenting management challenges, but really a ton of effort going into invasive plant control. Um, you know, if we were to walk away from a place like Emerson Point Preserve or Robinson Preserve, you know, our coastal preserves, we would um, see pretty quickly that within, you know, five or 10 years, it would be completely overrun with uh, invasive species, like massive changes in the prevalence of them. And that's, Overrun invasive species. Yeah, I mean, Brazilian pepper, I, you know, we're on like a two-year interval for sweeping a lot of our habitats for for things like carrot wood, um, Brazilian pepper, you know, invasive trees that, that uh, were brought in for the landscaping industry. Uh, and the list, the real list is, you know, 30 or 40 species. But um, so that's, that's another challenge. It's like you got to train people who... Uh, work in the preserves to, to identify all those species and to effectively control them, you know, while not uh, contaminating the environment with chemicals. So we got to teach them, you know, a broad integrated pest management program. So they need to, they need to understand when we, we, we do use biocontrol and cultural, you know, cultural means like pre pre prevention of those species from, you know, it's, it's things like washing off your lawnmower before you take it in, you know, or washing off our lawnmower before we take it in the preserve. So we're not spreading seeds into the preserve, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of preventative things you can do, but a lot of it comes down to the application of herbicides um, is, is really our one of our best tools. Um, and so you try to do that in a conscientious manner um, that's that protects the health, health and safety of the applicator, but the health and safety of the environment in particular is also, you know, critical. And then there's a lot of, a lot of, um, fear and, um, distrust of, of the use of herbicides. And, you know, so that's, that's our biggest issue with invasive species management is how little support there is for the use of herbicides. Was it Aldo Leopold said, uh, to, you know, to have an ecological, one of the penalties of an ecological education is to live alone in a world of wounds, um, because so much of the damage to land is invisible to the layman. So if you, if you have Brazilian pepper everywhere and to the layperson, that's just a, it's just more green stuff. It looks good, right? I mean, it's green, it's good, or, you know, it's, it's natural there. It's been there a hundred years, you know, you, they make those kind of arguments, but it expands so much at the expense of native plants that you're, you run the risk of creating a monoculture. 
and I I grew up um, playing out here at Robinson Preserve, and within a very short period of time after they stopped farming it, it turned to a, almost 100% Australian pine, Guinea grass, and Brazilian pepper. So three three common invasive species dominated that entire space in like you know you're talking about a 10 or 15 year period of it going fallow, which is completely colonized with those weeds that we had to clear you know to create the preserve but um it doesn't take very long yeah so yeah so we've got to we've got to figure out how to train our staff to do that we've got to equip them with the tools you know and and some of those tools are herbicides um um you know machetes chainsaws you know heavy equipment in some cases when we're dealing with you know mature infestations of brazilian pepper come through and mulch that down with a you know with a vegetation shredder so it, it it's, it's a huge portion of our time. And, and, and some folks coming from other places, we've hired folks from other, you know, state park systems in other states are, are you know, don't realize how much of their time is going to be put into invasive species management just to keep these places, you know, how they are, just to maintain them. You know, and I think most people, I think it was maybe your original point was, is, is um, well, you know, can't you just put up a fence and sort of, you know, or, you know, build a trail and just sort of like let it be, right? Let, yeah. let nature do its thing. Um, that would be the case if we didn't have invasive species. And if we didn't have fire exclusion, you know, we, we yeah, we could mostly let it be um, and, and not, you know, not have to actively manage, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a lot of people, you know, it's, it's kind of an aesthetic clash, you know, to think that nature needs to be managed in that way. Um, and, and, you know, because really we want to let nature do its thing. We don't want to be interventionist and, and um, you know, put our put our hands all over everything. Um, it would be ideal if, if we if we could, if we could not do that. Um, but, yeah, what we what we've seen, you know, and, and what's well documented is these invasive species take that habitat from a diversity of, you know, if you look at it like a, a pine flatwoods, you know, it's got mostly one species of tree, but I have 30, 40 species of wildflowers and grasses and shrubs in the, in the understory and ground cover. Um, if you have Kogan grass come in, you know, one of our worst invasive species, actually one of the worst globally, um, uh, Kogan grass, uh, if you were to let that just go, it basically eliminates all that ground cover. And then after a few burn cycles, it burns so hot, kills everything, even the trees. I've been to um, previously mined areas and reclaimed areas where, or unreclaimed areas where they just sort of smoothed it back out, but didn't really uh, establish any, any vegetation, just 100% Kogan grass, just far as the eye can see. And a very simplified ecosystem there. You know, you've got coyotes and rats, a couple of birds, and that's about it. Grasshoppers, you know, it's 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 a vastly simplified and reduced uh, ecosystem, which was what what we face if we kind of walk away from management is letting is is watching it kind of kind of spiral down and and basically it's like um, well I, I don't have a I'll, I'll uh, skip that metaphor. <laughs> I'm gonna, gonna go to a dark place. Yeah. Well, well, okay. So one, I mean, well, here, you know, maybe a. a a more um, a palatable thing, you know, it's, it's like it's a almost like having a, a rich tapestry of of life in, in in real world, but like like a tapestry. If it were if it were getting eaten by moths or something, you know, you'd, you'd want to intervene. Besides all these invasive plants, we've got invasive insects and um, fungal diseases, pathogens coming in. Those are those are things we don't have much ability to manage. Plants stay in one spot. You can go to them, find them kill them and come back, get the rest that see, you know, they're, they're 
movement on the landscape is predictable. Um, they move slowly, you know, they can get dispersed, but, um, that's less true of things that have a million spore, tiny spores that blow in the wind, like a old world climbing fern. So those can move around quicker than you think. But, um, for the most part, they're, they're things we can track and get a hold of, kill and manage, um, versus, you know, an invasive insect, you know, uh, you know, an Asian psyllid or something that's spreading. Uh, so for example, um, Laurel wilt disease is something that's moved in and affected all the mem members of the laurel family. So not only agriculturally important crops like avocados, but also native species like the red bay, silk bay, um, you know, bay trees that are that have some cultural significance. They're used in, in you know in the south uh, uh, as a as a good um, substitute for for the European Bay. Uh, so you can use it, you know, spaghetti or soups and things like that. So it was, it's culturally significant, but also very important to birds. It creates a, one of the largest uh, well-provisioned berries, you know, a little miniature avocado, which is great for migratory birds. But that in a matter, in just in my lifetime, half of my lifetime, basically went from prevalent to nearly gone. So repeating the, uh, what you've seen in the Northeast with uh, chestnut blight with the American chestnut tree, one of the most common trees in 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 um, Atlantic uh, hardwood forest disappeared, just gone. Um, you know, in in a you know generation or two, um, which is you know ecologically is an is an instant. You know, that's just um, so red bay, uh, silk bay, swamp bay. You know, the those um, those in that genus Persia have just disappeared, and that was just one disease coming in, um, and we're seeing. You know, several other uh, several other diseases that affect multiple native um, plant species are you know sort of on our radar as, and then so what do you do? We can't go out there and spray insecticides and and kill this bug that's vectoring this fungal pathogen, and we don't have intervention. You know, there's no plant, there's no tree hospital uh, or, or or tree you know tree doctor that's going to come out and and um, be able to treat all those. There aren't economically you know viable um, treatments for that or, or, you know, management remedies for that. So, so as much as we do like to think we're in charge of this ecosystem and, and responsible for its health, some of that stuff is just out of our hand, yeah. you know, including climate related issues. But so yeah, inv invasive species is, is, you know, that and climate change are just our number one existential threats that we, I would say partially deal with, you know, we, you know, we don't, we don't hundred percent, you know, in, in try, this, try to yeah. I mean the same way that law enforcement is, is, you know, in, in charge and responsible for preventing, you know, rape and murder and robbery, they, they, they make a difference. Right. But you know, they don't, they don't stop those things from ever happening. Yeah. It, it, you know, I hate to say management, but it is a kind of management where it's, you can only do what you can. Um, good, man. Gracious, dude. Well, besides these big buckets that I've mentioned from my limited understanding, is there anything else that you think that we've missed or that you would say the public isn't quite aware of, of what goes into, yeah, managing land? I know we didn't talk about uh, much about managing expectations and, and um, you know, user interest, you know, managing conflicts between user groups. Um, I think people have a better intuitive sense of that, but I, I think the degree to which that's an issue for us, you know, is lost on, on some people. So uh, Robinson Preserve is a good example of a busy preserve where we have a multi-use trail that goes down the middle of it. And that trail is a lot of different things. 
is, yeah. is a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, we have folks that want to rollerblade on that. We have folks that want to um, walk, you know, with their toddler, um, you know, or, or their tiny dog. Um, and then we have another set of folks that wants to, you know, ride their, you know, road bike, you know, wearing spandex and, yeah. and try, you know, sorry about that. I mean, I, I time trial through there, uh, you know, and, you know, really trying to, they're on a, on a, on a ride that's many miles and this is just a cut through form. So, yeah. so there's, there's those different user groups and, you know, trying to create that trail that is all things to all people is, is, um, you know, kind of a fool's errand, but, but we do try to accommodate as many user groups as possible. So, having to do things like build, build a whole new trail, um, like we did in the expansion, that's pedestrian only to say, Hey, if you're having difficulties with, you know, bicyclists or, you know, they're upsetting with, with how fast they're going, you know, we try to regulate the speed too. It's well posted, um, and monitored, but you know, uh, we have a set of folks that doesn't like to, doesn't like to be told that, um, what they can and can't do. So there's that issue. Um, you know, we get, we get the middle finger and curse words, uh, in, you know, anytime we try to regulate, not, not anytime, but quite often when we try to regulate people's behavior. So more than trying to make people do what they should do, uh, uh in terms of following the rules and getting along with us, we need to get them to want to do it. You know, it's like, like, uh, like your wife, I, I, I want you to want to take out the garbage. I, I want you to want to take, uh, to follow our, our rules so, so that, and see the benefit of that. So really hearts and minds with, with respect to, following rules that are designed to protect other visitors, you know, and to, to, you know, create a safer environment, but also protect the environment. So, you know, for example, you can't take your dog off the leash and let it run and chase birds in the preserve. I've had people say, Oh, you know, he loves to chase rabbits. So I take him here and I, I let him off the, the leash and he just gets, gets all that energy out. And I'm, I'm sure that's great for the dog. Uh, you know, absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm sure that'd be one of my favorite things to do if I was a dog, but, <laughs> yeah. but, um, it's, you know, obviously not great for rabbits. I mean, you know, maybe if you don't care about rabbits, you care about the great horned owl that's hunting the rabbits, you know, and then that you're scaring off. So, you know, just getting through people's head that most wildlife species, you notice there's not a lot of obesity in, in, in wildlife species, right? They're, they're, they're living somewhere near the physiological limits of, 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 you know, in other words, they can't afford to lose a lot of time foraging. They can't afford to be stressed a lot and burn calories, you know, running, running from you, hiding from you, you know, especially if you're a migratory bird that's, you know, just barely managed to get here from thousands of miles away and you got many more thousands of miles to travel, you know, like uh, we have a lot of migratory birds that are coming down the West coast of Florida that might be headed to South America. They need to, they need to be in as good a physiological shape as possible. And if we're, if we're, you know, doing a lot of things that, that scare them, flush them, you know, so, so our behavior needs to be, to to be managed. Our visitors behavior needs to be managed. So, you know, we, we, we create places where we don't have trails, you know, where, where birds can forage, um, and, and not be stressed by dogs and bicycles, but it's, a, it's definitely a trade-off. So yeah, that, I think that's one thing people don't realize as much as, is how their behavior impacts wildlife and how, um, how much work we try to do to, to get, give people as much freedom as we reasonably can um, in these places, but it's definitely, it's not satisfying to everybody. A lot of folks want to be able to, you know, bring a shovel into the preserve and be able to dig traps for fiddler crabs so they can get bait so they can fish. Like, well, that, you know, they don't, people don't fill in their holes, you know, and it is fairly disruptive in the salt turn areas that they want to, 
they want to access and and you know so we that's that's a behavior we just you know we can't allow or land you know a recreational use we just can't allow we can't have people you got to bring your bait in you can fish here but that's the sort of compromise we draw we, we don't allow people to cast net for example because um all of the debris and stuff that well not only do people you know end up leaving their cast net sometimes caught on rocks sections of the cast net gets you know ripped up and ends up trapping fish and stuff in in the water but also they bring up a whole bunch of seaweed onto the deck and then don't clean it up so it's it's a user conflict with the other people that want to walk on the boardwalk or the or the dock without you know slipping on seaweed so there's you know certain we just identify those those um ways that people want to use a preserve that aren't compatible with with the other visitors we have folks who want to come in and bow fish um but it's a very busy kayak trail so they're they're looking to stand on the bridge and shoot fish in the water while people are trying to kayak under you know every so often and now you could probably say well then he's not going to shoot the kayaker but kayakers don't want to paddle under a bridge with a guy on it with a bow and you know, but, you know. I'm not, I'm not keen uh, to it. so that, that happened yeah I'm that not keen to it yeah that kind of thing so i mean it's just you know managing those user conflicts i think is maybe one thing that What's one of the wildest things you've ever seen or heard someone doing? We've had people, we had, we had a group of ladies come and set up a a stripper pole, um, and do, you know, for one of their, they were doing a class on pole dancing, Yeah, you know, and so, but, but instead of doing that in like a studio or something, they, they wanted to do it in the preserve. So they came and set up their stuff and had to tell, you know. That's all we can't do this year. It's like, it's not, you know. It is a multi-use trail. Yeah, yeah. That's. You're, you're pushing the limits here. Yeah, I mean, there's that. I mean, you know, <laughs> folks want to play paintball. You know, right? Uh, we had we had guys on their um their the one wheel. I forget what they're called now. Like oh, yeah, the, yeah. the the fast one wheel. Um, they had all these cool lights on all, all these LED lights on them, but they wanted to play um, what's it, airsoft? Um, the the yellow pellet yeah. pellet guns. <laughs> they wanted to cruise around in the preserve at night and shoot each other with those. So, so I, had, I had multiple issues with that. A, we didn't want them in the preserve at night because we're trying to kind of let the wildlife have have the night shift to themselves. Yeah. And uh, so get folks out so they're not disturbing wildlife. Also, it's not really that safe. You know, our, on our tra- our trails aren't lit, right? So yeah. so we you know once you build a trail and, and you don't light it, well, you're potentially liable. For, yeah. for issues, so many trips, or you have a little bit of a buckle in the trail that it's not, you know. So in other words, we don't allow people in at night. So I had an issue with that. And then, of course, those plastic pellets, they're not picking those up. Those no. are just going everywhere. So. This show, it's called Florida Uncut, and we're all about talking about the people who are behind the effort to not only protect but connect wild Florida. And, uh, you know, from my understanding, I'm just like, get as many – acres as possible that's my simple approach my simple understanding is that the way you think too or is or is it i know it's more nuanced than that but is more acres better for for manatee county or is it like whoa 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 we need to actually think about what acres we we acquire yeah so where i'm at now so that's a that's a policy decision that you know is made above my pay grade but i would you know as as a manatee county resident i would certainly say more acres is better given where we're at now, there's a lot of urban planners and, and other folks uh, in the conservation world that have suggested that uh, roughly a third of, of, of our land mass should be set aside for, you know, for wildlife conservation and passive recreation, you know, those type of uses that we, that we promote, um, you know, a third for agriculture, a third for residential development and commercial stuff, and a third for, for, uh, you know, natural areas. Uh, so that's, 
that's that would be a balance that is a long ways from where we're at now. We have about thirteen percent of of Manatee County in conservation or various under various forms of protection. Uh, it's a little bit less. Uh, it's quite a bit less than our our neighbors to the south, Sarasota County. Uh, it's a little closer to thirty percent. Yeah, so it helps if yeah the state acquired a bunch of land early on, but. Um, yeah, part of the issue is Manatee County being uh, having a good uh, navigable river and being close to Tampa Bay and Tampa, you know, the rail lines were here first. It was developed a little bit earlier than, you know, certainly a place like Sarasota County has a lot of had a lot of flat, wet area that wasn't good for much other than cattle. So those areas were less developable. So, but Manatee County had more high and dry ground and, and good agricultural land. So more developed early on. But so that's, that might be a little bit out of reach, that third, um, but certainly more than what we have now. Definitely possible for the state. And I think the state as a whole is close to that. Yeah. Right around 27, 28% right now. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's good news. Um, but, but in terms of what, you know, what conservation can take place here in, in Manatee County, um, it's, it's those little vignettes and, and places where people can see what Florida used to look like, you know, those, those smaller parks and preserves embedded in a suburban context. But then also I think some landscape level connections are still uh, able to be made to places like Duet to the South, to the Micah Island area and to the North up into Hillsborough County. I think there's uh, a lot of, a lot of potential still. Um, I think the clock's ticking and that window is, is closing, but I think we still have a, a shot to create um, meaningful landscape connections that would preserve some of those megafauna. I mean, we have panthers and bears coming through duet still. We don't plan, we don't foresee that those would be the center of any population of those things, but just knowing that they can move through and use those areas pretty is pretty neat. But yeah, as far as your question, like, you know, is, is it all about maximizing acres? Um, yeah, no, I don't think so. You know, we our, our program has has um, done a good job of protecting coastal areas. So the amount of coastline we have uh, in conservation is is pretty impressive relative to other counties, certainly than Hillsborough and Pinellas. I and mean, we have a mm. we have a ton of of our shoreline protected, um, you know, which helps with sea level rise and hurricane resiliency and that kind of thing. But uh, also provides very accessible places for people to you know recreate, kayak, fish. Um, you know, a, a hundred a hundred acres on the Manatee River or on you know Tampa Bay is has a higher recreational value than uh, you know a random hundred acres near Mayaca City. You know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. It just it just is going to draw more people and I mean provide more compelling recreational experiences. But yeah, so it's not it's not just you know how much acreage you get. It's, it's where as well. You know, and and you know, what resources does it protect? You know, if you, if you had a hundred acres around a first magnitude spring, I'd say that's a lot more important than 500 acres, you know, of pasture somewhere else. So, so the type of acreage is, is important, but, um, but yeah, I, I, more is better. <laughs> and, and, and yeah. And so luckily the, and, and I think, you know, the citizens of Manatee County recognize that and, and, and put their support towards, uh, getting more before it's gone. Cause, uh, yeah, we're not making any more of it. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not, you know. How many people here in Manatee County are doing this work? So um, if you count just the folks that are, in, that are under the resource management division that are doing um, conservation lands management, um, sort of maintaining those properties, uh, there's 17 of us. Well, you know, 17, so 16-person team I manage. Um, and those are folks from around, 
you know, diverse uh, backgrounds. Um, we got folks that, you know, used to be ranchers, used to be law enforcement, you know, have come through uh, wildlife biology programs. And, you know, there, there's a there's a diversity of folks. But, you know, what, what they have in common generally is that they like to be outside or at least part of the time like to be outside. They have a, they have an interest in, you know, protecting places and, and wildlife and they have an interest in make you know making sure people respect those areas and are able to use them in the ways that they you know maybe they grew up doing it. a lot of folks that grew up um attending our hunt program that later you know came to work for us so so you know and, and like myself uh, you know i used to play in a lot of these areas before they were protected emerson point preserve we played paintball out there you'd be on a one wheel these days <laughs> you were a kid these days <laughs> yeah they we used to find forever those little plastic tubes that was like you know because before they had the big hopper they just had the little six round tubes you'd put in oh and that's right like yeah the guns yeah, were I'd... like <laughs> just like one shot guns it's ridiculous oh man so uh, dude, the, the, the amount of work you listed, I was thinking about 10 times that many people. Oh, well, <laughs> so then, then there's the parks, you know, parks department that, that manages a lot of, uh, open space. I wouldn't call it conservation land, but, um, you know, a lot of open space where people recreate and that's, that's a much larger group, you know, I think probably 60 or so, um, park and parks maintenance group, but they have a much higher level of maintenance. You know, they've got to make sure every tree is trimmed and every, you know, blade of grass is cut to spec so they're taking care of ball fields and and uh, other open space you know how how do you stay on the forefront of knowledge because you you just gave I, I feel like it's like phd level information um and i've got a phd in the back of my truck <laughs> good uh, me too post hole diggers uh yeah but uh good. yeah I, I feel like i'm getting another one today good um so so yeah so there are a variety of so one thing that really saves our butts as far as educating us, you know, sometimes not against our will, but educating us when, um, you know, when, when other sources of information aren't available. IFAS extension um, provides a lot of good info um, around invasive species management. Uh, and the Florida Forest Service does a lot of education around fire management and, and things like that. So we rely on uh, other agencies to provide those trainings um, and we, we attend them and uh, more so than other other employers, Manatee County is committed to a high level of training and investment and education of, of their staff. Um, we find, you know, in the state of Florida used to be there right with us, but with budget cuts, they had to cut back on how much they were training. So they no longer require their, their folks who do invasive plant management are no longer required to have the FDAX pesticide applicators license. Um, the reason we like to keep that standard is because it requires continuing education units. So our staff then, in order to keep their license, uh, has to has to get a certain number of, of uh, CEUs per, you know, per <clears throat> every four years they have to renew. So they got to do that every year. Um, so <clears throat> to stay abreast of new developments in, in herbicide technology and application techniques and what biocontrol agents are available out there. We've now done several biocontrol agent releases um, that were, you know, of course, approved through a long process. Um, but to help deal with air potato and old world climbing fern and Brazilian pepper in particular. Um, so working with University of Florida and um, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the lab. Uh, yeah, I forget. I forget the. Uh, I think it's the Bureau of Entomology um, through the state that has provided those biocontrol releases, air potato beetles, those little thrips that eat Brazilian pepper. So 
that's our one of our biggest hopes is is that that biocontrol um, program will continue to provide um, uh, effective biocontrol agents so basically reuniting those invasive plants with their natural enemies from their home range finding the ones that are most effective and that won't attack other native plants and crops. So that's the biggest obstacle is, is making is the 10 year, sometimes eight to 10 year process that it takes to permit those biocontrol agents and make sure that they're not going to harm native species and make sure they're not going to harm crops. You, you know, it's, it's all good. You know, great. If you find something that, um, you know, can, you know, controls an invasive species, but if it also controls a viable crop, then that's no good. We can't, oh you gosh. can't use that. So, um, anyways, that's a, that's a, you're playing with fire there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why, that's why it's, it's, it's a 10 year process and it involves every, uh, government agency and academic institution that, you know, us, even tribal governments get to, get to weigh in on it. Um, and so it has to get signed off from every, that's why very few biocontrol agents get released. But um, we haven't had, uh, you know, a case of like blowback from one of those where one one we found out it's it attacked the wrong thing. You know, most of these insects that are they're mostly insects and they're almost all highly highly specialized on on that particular plant and sometimes even different parts of a plant. So they released an air potato beetle that only yeah. only eats the leaves, uh, the leaves of uh, air potato. You know, the um, basic plant in Florida. We, we were just removing those in Mayaka. Last weekend, a couple of weeks oh, yeah. ago. Yeah. Now they have one. That, the beetle. Now they have one that only attacks the bulbuls that's being released. So really? there are these two, these two um, little ladybug looking red beetles um, that are going to kind of tag team to probably knock that plant out of out of our list of, of really bad guys that are a problem and t- turn into yeah. a minor nuisance. So that would be a huge thing. Um, and then if they could do that for more of our, more of the species we deal with, that's a game changer. So wow. Yeah, and, and then we're not having to. Then we're not having to, you know, be out there putting putting as much chemical out in the environment as we as we, you know as we often do have to. Wait, wait, I, I did forget to ask you this. I, do we harvest anything off our land? Oh, as a county, and, and what do we do with that? Is that yeah? Do, do we sell that, or was it just for our own use? Like, yeah. What, what, what do we harvest? So yeah, good question. Um. So yes, we do. We we do have. I think as as the land managers, some I think in incentive but in mandate to try to generate any revenue that can be generated to offset management costs um if if we can do so in a sustainable manner that doesn't doesn't uh cause you know ecological harm so for example we have um because of the history of fire suppression we still have more palmetto saw palmetto on the landscape than we would have historically so the saw palmetto berry is harvested because it's valuable, um, you know, as for prostate health. It's, it's a you know herbal supplement for prostate health because it has value and because we can pull some of it from the environment and not cause harm, uh, or at least that's that's our our belief, or you know, um, based on the information we have. But so, but in, in so doing, like we, we still set limits on how much we harvest. So ten percent or less of, of duet preserves area. So we harvest. 10% or less of the habitat. And then that way, if we're wrong about this causing harm, it's, you know, very limited in terms of scope and scale. Um, there's not a ton of research on there. Um, certainly some species are very reliant on saw palmetto berry. So eliminating from the landscapes is, an, is definitely a, a no-no. Um, but so we, we saw, we, we, we made $80,000 this year 
uh, harvesting just just under 2,500 acres. So, so, so uh, um, from from headwaters and duet. So that's that's about 25,000 acres total. So we we harvested about 10% of that area, and and generated a little over eighty thousand dollars. So that'll that'll go directly into invasive plant control. And that's and, okay. That's and, public and, information. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 You're, you're, you'll be telling people. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, this, yeah, it's all public record. Yeah. Everything we try to do in the sunshine, you know, this, yeah. I mean, if you, if you feel like you need to hide it from the public, then it's probably not something you should be doing, well, <laughs> but that's our, that's our creed. But yeah, so, so we're not, we're not ashamed of what we do in terms of harvest. So we do a lot of wildflower seed uh, collection, wild, that, yeah, wildflower yeah. and grass seed collection. Um, we, in the past, we had sold that to other um, companies that were doing restoration projects, uh, some of it on mined land, some of it at other publicly owned natural areas. Um, but in the last several years, we've kept all of that and used it for our own projects. So we've stopped selling grass and wildflower seed for a few years now and have been using it in our own restoration projects at places like Duet Preserve, at Hidden Harbor mm-hmm. Park, at uh, Robinson Preserve, you know, basically where we need to turn, you know, old fallow fields into good ground cover again mm-hmm. you know diverse mix of wildflower and grasses you have so. that ready for when that time, time yeah is needed and the potential to sell it or you used to use yeah it? yeah we, we had uh, sold it um for several years it, it's just gotten to the point where we have our own restoration program is active enough that we can use that seed in-house and and, and we don't have a surplus uh and we could get back to you know that if we what were. about hay you sell hay? um no um we don't have good hay field you know we, we don't have good uh because we we planted in pine a lot of our our uh, pasture areas that we could have sold hay off of so most of our our pasture areas that do and there was about um there's about six thousand acres that do that was previously row crops or pasture so maybe maybe yeah maybe about three thousand acres of that it, it used to be um but we've eliminated a lot of those improved pasture areas by planting um pines and restoring the ground cover so you know, wow. basically trying to take it back to, you know, and those are areas now that are, you know, prime hunting and um, just good, you know, better recreational areas. Okay. So other things we sell, uh, just, just to continue that vein. Um, so wildflower seed, palmetto berry, we have sold trees where, where they're too dense and need to be thinned out. Um, yeah. You know, after, after, you know, the 20s and 30s when they basically clear cut most of Duet, and some of those areas came up with all even age kind of, dog hair thick pines and those had to be thinned at various stages so um not only that but the planted pine that we plant is very dense and then as, as that grows up we thin it um sometimes three times but at least twice if not three times is that like a natural process yeah to get it to an even uh, i mean to get it to a a, a more appropriate spacing mm-hmm. so you know and the question is well what's what's appropriate how do you know how many pines should be out there um so we rely on one of our, our forms of evidence of that is is the uh, the survey notes from 1847. Uh, surveyor by the name of Sam Reed, Sam Reed surveyed most of uh, Manatee and Sarasota counties um, in did I say eight, eight, well, I forget what I said. I think it's 1848. It was before the Civil War. So 1848, he surveyed all of those section lines. You know the section township range lines. Surveyed all of those and made notes as he went. And so one of the goals was to was to bring back information about how, uh, what are the potential economic uses of the land. You know, is it dry? Is it sandy? You know, so you would comment on 
um, the pine stands and give us a sense for the quality of the pine stands. So from, and from a northern perspective, that's like how dense and how straight the trees are. Yeah. If they're short, they're not very tall. If they're crooked and they're not as valuable, if they're very sparse, you know, that's it's all that was called third rate pine. So you see a lot of that, especially in South Florida where it's wet. A lot of third rate pine is what he called it. And uh, out here at Duet, we had a lot of that too. But then we had stands where it was, he said, first rate pine. So a lot of taller, straighter, long leaf pine primarily um, that would have been very economically valuable. And of course it was. And that's why it got completely logged out on the 20s. But but um, that gives us a sense for which areas had, you know, strong stands of pines. And then also we've, we've gone and looked at, because um, they also, after they turpentine the trees for a number of decades, then they, you know, tapped them and, and extracted sap to make turpentine. Then they clear cut them and, and then they came back and harvested the stumps. They found out those had value too. Extracted the stumps. So you could actually go through and map the stump holes and find out how many mature trees used to be on the landscape. What was the value? Oh, that they used that to make dynamite. The lighter knot? Yeah, extract the, the lightered out stumps to, to uh, I, I don't know what the, the actual um, product is, but it was, it was a product used in TNT. So, uh, you know, in this, in, you know, Peninsula of Florida, well, throughout the Southeast, there's, you know, old areas where they had big, um, big concrete pits where they just boiled all that down and collected the, uh, the, the, sa- the resin out of the, out of the stumps to make, uh, I guess, uh, amongst other things, it was an ingredient in TNT. So they, so we, we go count the stump holes and figure out how many trees should be there. So, so thinning those, those planted pines down to that, um, density as they mature yields, you know, a tree trees that we can sell for, you know, mostly for fence posts or even, you know, chip, what they call chip and saw. Mm-hmm. It's just a, mm-hmm. And they're making mulch. Yeah. And I'm sure there's opportunities like that after a hurricane. Yeah, we did salvage. After Irma, we salvaged a, a whole stand that was all blown sideways. Yeah. It was, you know, just wasn't, wasn't, they weren't, the trees weren't big enough and strong enough yet to resist the wind. So they all kind of blew sideways. So we had all that harvested. Um, Is there an argument to be made? Why not just leave it? That's a natural process. Um, it would be if we, so the problem was all those pines are the same age. They were all young. And so it didn't, it didn't yield a stand that was, um, you, I don't know, useful. I mean, both, both, uh, aesthetically, but also, so sal- yeah, salvaging the trees post hurricane, you know, is, is, it clears the way for us to plant new, stronger trees that aren't, mm-hmm. aren't going to be bent sideways. The, the, the reason being when you put fire through it, when, when trees have their crown closer to the ground, they'll burn up. Oh, um, so man. they're less likely to survive fire. I yeah. mean, you look at a well-burned pine flatwoods, most of the limbs are way up. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at a planted tree that's been in an urban landscape for a long time, it'll have branches lower down. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been pruned up by fire. So, And I guess the landscape had been altered so much it was worth starting over to go, yeah. kind of go for the best version of it just yeah because it wasn't an old growth forest or anything right and it wasn't even natural regeneration taking place it was it had been uh cleared for row crops or pasture uh and sometimes both of those in sequence so depending on the economics of cow, beef prices versus uh truck crop prices you know things like squash and cucumber and watermelons depending where the prices are at and then how the feasibility of irrigation of that site, because pasture doesn't require irrigation, but row crops do. That kind of dictates the, the various land land uses out there around, you know, in, in Eastern Manatee County. So, 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 you know, we've been talking about a lot of things that are 
kind of like the quote you're talking about, you, you, evidence of a wounded world. Yeah. Feel hopeless. What gives you hope about the future of Florida and uh, its protection? Well, the work that, you know, that you're doing through LMAC and the environmental lands program is doing to, to uh, you know, to acquire these places and put them under a, you know, robust management regime is, you know, is a bright spot, uh, you know, on the horizon. But also, I, you know, also you have to, I kind of have to think like, what's the alternative to, to, to not being hopeful to, you know, what, what's the alternative to, uh, to, to giving a, giving a shit? What's the alternative to, to caring? Because if we, if we kind of fold our arms or, or throw up our hands or, you know, and, and walk away from it, it, it just gets, well, I have kids too. Right. So, so I'm, I'm highly motivated to make sure they have some semblance of, of the world that I grew up in. And yeah, I'm, it, it is painful to be to become aware of what used to be, you know. So, like, you know, I've I've gotten the opportunity to walk through some cypress swamps where, you know, stumps or rotted out stumps are like bigger than I can put my, you know, three five people can put their arms around. You know, that was probably a fifteen hundred year old tree that was cut. You have to ask a question. Well, you know, what they didn't know about land preservation back then, and you know, they didn't have that aesthetic or there was an, you know, a strong economic driver to do that. But I mean, what's the mindset there? Like that we'll cut these 15 year, hundred year old trees. And then in 1500 years, we can do it again. I mean, it's just like, yeah. what's the thought there? You know, they clear cut. So it's hard to, um, you know, it's, it's hard to reconcile, you know, the way people in the past have treated land. And then, you know, the way we've kind of been educated, educated, you know, post the 1970s with, you know, having grown up in a, you know, in a, uh, an environmental movement, you know, in, in place and that, that ethos, I mean, you know, that we should, we should protect it, you know? It, yeah. It's, it's hard to reconcile the way we're educated to treat, you know, are enculturated to treat land and, and the way it was in the past. But, you know, that the past is the past. I mean, we can't, uh, we can only look at what can be, you know, I mean, it's important to be aware of, of what was, that gives you a kind of a, uh, an, uh, you know, an orientation for, for where we could, where we might be able to get back to, but I mean, ultimately, you know, with, with development of land use changes and with climate change, you know, we're not going to go back to, to 1491. Um, it's, you know, it's just not going to happen, but we can certainly get things a lot closer to that and, and get things functioning, um, you know, in ways that, that, uh, are aesthetically more pleasing that, you know, that, that provide better hunting and fishing opportunities that provide better recreational, you know, and all kinds of ecosystem services, you know, they can certainly store more carbon, you know, than, than a lot of these places do. So, uh, and, and, you know, more oxygen, you know, uh, uh, more clean water. So besides, uh, some of the aesthetic things, aesthetic things that we get hung up on and creating a, you know, a natural stand of pine or a, um, you know, a marsh, uh, marsh that's, that's functioning like, like it should, um, you know, just all those, those water quality benefits are, are, are things that are, I think are pretty compelling reasons to, to care and to put energy into it. Also mo another source of motivation is just people coming up and saying, Hey, thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah. Uh, we get that a lot, you know, I'm pretty sure the guys that, go and clean sewage blockages out from under the, the road. Um, you know, <laughs> they don't get that as much as we do. And, and I, w I wish they did. I think about them sometimes yeah. when I, when somebody says, Oh, thank you very much. You know, for the work you guys are doing it's such a lovely place, you know, thanks for taking care of this place. We get thanked quite a bit. Um, and so 
that's motivation to to do more of this to to yeah. uh, to make places like Emerson and Point Preserve and Robinson Preserve and Duet Preserve, you know, closer to where some of these other uh, areas of the county we haven't really served yet in terms of providing a natural area that people can go to walk to. You know, we have a lot of a lot of our visitation is people at, here at Robinson Preserve is folks that are within the neighborhood that walk here. I wish everybody in Manatee County had a preserve they could take a five minute walk to mm. or a, you know, a five minute bike ride to. Um, so that's, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. Uh, you might not want to share because it might be a secret or special, but is there a place in Florida that's particularly special to you? Yeah. Yeah. Several. Uh, I mean, I think everybody is, you know, you get this answer out of a lot of people. I think everybody really, really is impressed with, um, Florida's springs and spring runs, um, you know, place like Juniper Creek, uh, or Juniper Run, um, Itchitucknee, you know, the Wakiva River. There's so, there's so many places, uh, you know, it wants so many, but it's quite a few uh, relative to other states where, and I've, I've been to Texas and I've seen their springs and they're nothing like Florida Springs. I mean, I think you got to go to South America to find, you know, as many um uh, those type of uh, you know springs that are just gushing out millions of gallons of clear water um, and creating you know some pretty neat uh, you know habitats from that. But um, so yeah, I'd say that those places um, are really uh, you know I've spent a lot of time in Central Florida in in those flat landscapes that are a mosaic of uh, pine flatwoods and uh, marshes and things like that. So I, I really like those open vistas to be able to turn. 360 degrees and see, you know, see at least a quarter mile, half a mile in any direction, you know, those, those open prairies and, and, uh, pine flatwoods habitats and, uh, marshes and things that you see in central and South Florida a lot. Um, I really like those places. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just the beaches as well. Egmont Key is a really special place, you know, for me to be able to get out there and, and not have a million people. I was 15. I, I, uh, me and my brother took our Hobie cat out there, um, from, from Palmasola Causeway. We didn't have cell phones back then. So, <laughs> so my dad was pretty pissed when we weren't back on time, but I am a little worried, but, um, but yeah, getting out to Egmont Key and, you know, to the history there and the, and the beautiful beaches, pretty neat. Um, wow. but yeah, Man Manatee County has got a, you know, has, has a lot of, a lot of, uh, natural heritage still, you know, to, to, that's worth protecting. That's, yeah. I think it's pretty it's compelling. A, it's an incredible place, and it and it just keeps it keeps coming. The more you learn. Well, last question is: I always want to end on a call to action. What it what is one of the more important things you could say the public can do in the assistance of either land management or the protection of of more land? What I would say is use it, uh, use it or lose it, but but use it so that you that you value it, that there's support, get your kids out there, get your friends, get your grandmother out there. My, my great aunt said um, to me the other day, do we have grasshoppers around here? And I mean, she, she literally, and I had to think about it. I was like, Oh yeah, there's, there's not a grasshopper for a mile around where she lives. Like it's all St. Augustine lawns. And like, there's no, even something as common, you know, as a grasshopper, I realized she, yeah, she really wouldn't see that. She, you know, she had come down here and been here probably 10 years and hadn't seen a grasshopper. So I was like, okay, that's actually a pretty reason. That's a scary and sad thing, you know, because the natural stands of grass had been completely removed. I mean, grasshoppers don't really live much in, in St. Augustine lawn. So that was pretty interesting. But, but what, you know, because what you know, you love, what you love, you protect. 
So if you don't, if you're not familiar with these places, if you if you don't use them in any way, whether to fish or or just to walk or or whatever you, you do, um, that's that's the main thing I would encourage people to do. You know, besides taking political action, besides besides um, you know voting uh, for land referendum, for um, you know supporting um, you know programs like the like the the wildlife tag program that, that um, you know when you purchase a license plate um, with a with a wildlife on on it you, you donate a little bit to uh, to good programs that we make use of to do restoration. You know, there's all those ways. There's a million ways to support it, but I would say number one is just just get out in these places and use them. And that's the funnest option too. Yeah, but you know, we're, we're raising a generation of kids that are you know that are uh, have nature nature deficit disorder, right? Like they're they're underexposed to natural places and and wild things, you know. And so we know that has psychological consequences. We know that has health consequences, and certainly you know what what um what kind of a voter does that produce if if they don't don't really have much of a connection to natural area that's that's the biggest risk that's my biggest fear is is having um you know because uh baby boomers you know you know as much as i can point to specific you know failures in terms of uh the way the way things have gone with land development and planning and, and all that you know you can you can point the finger at that generation but they certainly have uh show you know those are some of our best volunteers our most engaged visitors those are folks that especially in this state yeah yeah most yeah right how many how many of them have a story of uh riding their bike with their 22 rifle on their shoulder and going places and like just being able to hunt squirrels or you know really having that frontier of suburban and wild you know everywhere in florida was a new house next to a wild untouched place or, you know, big pasture areas and just, you know, room to play and room to room to make mistakes. And, you know, so they, they grew up with a, with a lot of exposure to uh, natural areas. And I feel like my generation was maybe one of the last to, to get that kind of free play um, in the wild and, you know, just go out and you can, you can hurt yourself and, and, you know, things like that. Um, so I do worry about generations now. I mean, they certainly are more, um, ideologically more inclined to protect, you know, they, they seem more aware of in a, in an, in an academic sense, like they know more about environmental science and they know more about, you know, how the, how the earth's climate system works. You know, they, they're educated better than, than previous generations, but, um, on, on the environment, but they don't, I don't know if they have as much of that visceral, uh, hands-on connection to it, you know, that, that would motivate them to, protect it so that that's my worry uh, and yeah so my my encouragement is yeah get get your kids get your uh your family out in natural areas that we do have well mike uh you know and i know you say you got th- you get thanked a lot well i'm gonna add to that thank you yeah thank you this was awesome yeah i appreciate it Thanks so much to Mike and his team in Manatee County for the work they do. Uh, If you want to find out more, I put some links in the show notes of some of the resources that he mentioned he stays informed with. And also, come visit our parks. Go use these places. Uh, I think that's so important to use it or lose it. Show your government, show your community that these places are important by going out there and being in them. And also, if you want to support the show, five bucks a month, go to our show notes. But yeah, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, all that. And we'll talk to you next week.